Open up your Bibles, if you would, with me to the letter to Titus. Titus is in, in the New Testament. It's near the end of the collection that we have for Paul's letters. And uh, we're, we're starting out, basically, we're starting our fall series a little bit early. Um, we're going to cover two of the messages, and then we'll finish Titus in the fall. Um, that's the way summers work, I guess. Um, let's pray. Um, let's pray now as we get ready and prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this evening that we get to gather around your word. It is through your word and by your word, as that song sang, that we come to true saving faith in your sovereign plan. And we thank you for your grace and your kindness that calls and elects us out of our death and out of our darkness in sin and causes us to have new eyes to see and believe the truth of the gospel. We pray now that as we open up your word that we'd have ears to hear it and learn and grow and, 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 and find ways to apply it even to our minds and in our hearts. Pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin by reading from Titus, Titus 1, uh, verse 1. We're going to read the first four verses tonight. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifest in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you ever used safety scissors? It's this great invention for little kids. Scissors are, these scissors are made out of total plastic. Uh, they're really safe, but they are not very effective. How many of you have ever successfully cut a paper all the way through with safety scissors? It takes precision and skill because they are not very good tools for the job. Unless, of course, your name is Nathan back there in the back row. Sa- sa- oh, okay. Safety scissors are very safe, but not very effective. Not very sharp. They're not real good tools. If I had to choose a tool, I would choose a different sort of scissors altogether. And Paul is writing to Titus on the letter of Crete because he wants Titus to continue the work that Paul has begun. He is going to be Paul's representative on the island of Crete to to equip the churches to ground them in doctrine and order so that they can be effective. Effective. So that they can be effective to reach the rest of the island for Christ. But the the key to effectiveness in the Christian life is actually godliness. And, and if you read through Titus, the letters through Titus as we did last time, you'll see Paul Paul wants them to be effective for a witness to the watching world, but Paul is more concerned about godliness. Godliness is what makes you sharp in your witness. And that's what Paul is leaving Titus on the island of Crete to do, to stress the necessity of godliness. 
And if you remember our three-part outline for the letter to Titus, it's this. Chapter 1 is about the necessary godliness that needs to be over the church of God, that needs to be leading the church of God. Chapter 2 is about the necessary godliness that needs to be inside the church of God. And chapter 3 is about the necessary godliness that needs to be demonstrated outside the church to the watching world. And all of this is, is for effectiveness in, in a witness. And Paul here, in the first four verses of this letter, introduces himself. Now, this may seem strange to some of you, who, uh, you know, we here in the Western world, we begin letters with addressing who we are writing to. And back then, in the first century, they began letters with who they were, Paul. So, it's, it's not Titus writing to Paul, it's Paul writing to Titus. That's how they began letters. And, and Paul also does something really interesting here. He begins this letter with a, a broad description of his mission and his purpose as an apostle and as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He describes uh, the, the purpose for which he is an apostle and he is a slave. And this is important for Titus to know because why? Notice how he describes himself. We'll, we'll get to it in a minute. Paul describes himself as a servant, or the, the Greek word as a doulos, as a slave of Christ. He is totally sold and under the lordship, the mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not his will that determines what he does. It is the Lord Jesus Christ's will. He is a slave of Christ. He has no opinions of his own. He lives to serve his master. And actually, you can apply that to all of us, right? Christians are also called slaves of Christ as well. But notice, he also describes himself as an apostle. He is an authoritative representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes with a message, and he bears the authority of Jesus in the message that he carries. And, and Paul now communicates why he's an apostle, why he's a slave. Notice that word, for, there. For, and then verse 2, in the hope of and it goes on. He is explaining his ministry. This is important for Paul because as he is a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, so Titus is a representative of him. And so Paul wants to help Titus and establish Titus in his purpose, in his mission from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul's purpose as a slave, as a servant, is, is kind of a, a threefold description here. He is to ignite something, to grow something, and to establish something. To, to, to ignite, to grow, and to establish true and genuine saving faith that lasts. That is the purpose for which Paul is a slave and an apostle. And tonight I want to look at this threefold purpose, and, and I want to kind of break it down in a way that's maybe a little bit more applicable to you and personal to you. We're going to look at the three essential elements of true and genuine faith. Uh, true and genuine faith is, is the purpose for which Paul has been called. And we want to look at it, hey, what does it look like to have true and genuine and lasting, saving faith? And we're going to look at this in the description that Paul gives of himself. When we, when we talk about something that is essential, we're talking about something that, that is integral, that, is, that is, is important, significant. If you were to take away one of these components the whole thing would no longer be effective, would no longer work. These are the three essential elements. Some of you know this about me, some of you don't. 
Some of you, after you hear the story, will wish you never knew this about me. But before I was pursuing pastoral ministry at TMS, I was at a fire academy trying to learn about firefighting. And, and to be honest with you, firefighting was not as interesting to me. I did like the whole aspect of breaking down doors. That was really fun to me. But it wasn't fun to spend a whole week um, learning about the intricacies, the ins and outs of fire extinguishers. I still don't know how they work. But it was a whole week wasted in my life. But in Fire Academy, there was one. Th- there was lots of things that I enjoyed. But but one thing in the classroom that I found very interesting, and it was learning about the science of fire. There's this. There is this thing um, that they call the fire. Uh, tetrahedron, or some people refer to it as the fire triangle. It is the three essential components of fire. If you take away one of these components, there is no fire. Fire is impossible. And I find this very fascinating. So what are these three essential uh, elements? Number one, you have to have oxygen. You ever noticed how, if you have a fire... I don't know where, in your basement. Uh, no, uh, you don't know what a basement is, uh, California. Uh, if you have a fire and you throw like a blanket over it or dirt over it, the fire goes out. And, and it's because the fire no longer has any oxygen. It needs oxygen to, to burn. But also there's another essential component to a fire. There's also the need for fuel. If you are at a campsite and there is a fire, if you pull the logs away, they will, the fire will die down and eventually uh, disappear. If you remove fuel from a fire, the fire goes out. And then there's a third, very, this is maybe even more, they're all essential, but this one's really essential. The third essential component of a fire is Matthew Yepes. <laughs> right? So, no, uh, it is an ignition source, an ignition source, also known as Matthew Yepes. Right? So, so for example, um, oxygen and fuel, wood, wood is fuel. You can have a lot of oxygen and a lot of fuel out in the woods, but without a spark, there is no fire. But if you have Matthew Casted, uh, sorry, Matthew Yepes in the middle of the forest, you have a forest fire. Uh, right? Is that true? No. That's, never mind. Anyway, so these are the three critical components of a fire. You take away one of these things, there's no ignition, there's no fire, there's no fuel, there's no fire, there's no oxygen, there is no fire. And true and genuine, lasting, saving faith has the same three items that Paul breaks down for us today. We, we could say this is true and genuine, lasting, blazing faith. This is a healthy faith. This is a strong faith. These are the three essential qualities. Take one of these away and your faith will dissolve into nothing and prove itself to be useless, uh, ineffective. And, and we're going to look at these things. Number one, um, critical to true saving faith, we have the ignition source of belief, we have the fuel of growth, and we have the oxygen of hope. Let's break these down one at a time. Number one, the ignition source of belief. Notice Paul, as he's explaining his ministry, uh, gives you a four there, right after he says a servant and an apostle. Four. He's he's about to explain why he is a servant and why he is an apostle. Number one, he is an apostle for the faith of God's elect. God's elect is a very precious title, right? It, It indicates to us that God has chosen before all time 
to save some, to elect some to himself, like what we sang in that song, that wonderful song. And Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says this, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined, another word for election, He predestined us for adoption as sons according to the purpose of His will. The Bible is full of language like this, of God electing, choosing. And before you get high on your horse and say, well, God must have really been impressed with me. That's why he chose me. Please recognize what Ephesians 1 is saying before the foundation of the world. As a matter of fact, he chose you when you were lost, condemned, worthless. Notice what he says uh, in, verse, in chapter 3. Verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Notice this, it's all rooted in him, in his electing grace. Election also is a, a term that, that refers to someone choosing and selecting something for themselves, to themselves. Election is a wonderful term, but it requires other things to happen for it to be complete. It's not just that God elects some to be saved and some to not be saved, and the ones that are elected, of course, are saved automatically. He also purchases the ones that he elects. So we see in in chapter 2 and verse 14, we see Christ himself appearing, grace appearing, and paying the substitutionary price for the elected people, purchasing them, suffering in their place. And also we see that these people must hear and believe and respond to the message of Christ with belief. And, and that's not even enough. They also must be regenerated. They must have renewed ears, spiritual eyes to see. That, of course, is what he was referring to there in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, right? He saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. Notice, a lot is required to bring salvation to sinful man. You have to be chosen before all time. You have to be regenerated by the Spirit, but you also need to hear the good news of the Gospel. And this is what Paul is talking about here in chapter 1, verse 1. He is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for, for their ability to hear and respond in belief and obedience to the Gospel. He, he exists, he is a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ to declare the truth of the gospel to all people so that God's elect can hear and respond through the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience and faith. Or, like our title puts it, Paul exists for the ignition source of belief to declare the gospel so that faith can be ignited. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Faith means you suddenly have eyes that see spiritual realities. Suddenly you live a life 
that, that sees more to this world than just flesh and blood. You see spiritual, eternal things. Or you could say it like this, you have new eyes to see this world in terms of God's truth. And, and, and your eyes are opened and you want to obey God's truth. Or you could put it this way. Have you ever watched a scary movie with a twist at the end a second time? Watching it the second time is much different than watching it the first time. Your eyes are opened to see the world as it really is. This is what happens when the Spirit opens up your eyes. You see truth as it really is. You see what is evil as it truly is. You see sin as it truly is. You see God's holiness as it truly is. You see your your condition as it truly is before God. And you're not fooled by anything. That's what faith is. It is the assurance of things. It's the conviction of things. Where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17 says that it comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It's a a conviction. It's an assurance of the truth of God's word, of the truth of the gospel. That That is what faith is. You say to yourself, this is true, this is reality, this is more real than anything I can see before me in my day. What does faith look like? Paul says in, in Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26, he, he describes his ministry as for the obedience of faith, for the obedience of faith. And again at the end of Romans, faith means you see the world as it truly is, you see God as it truly is, and it results in an obedient, believing response. It results in repentance, it results in faith. That is true, that is true faith. It is faith that believes things and lives a different life. Paul is Christ's slave sent to ignite the obedience of faith in God's people, in God's chosen people. Hearing, uh, hearing is how, how God's people hear God's truth and respond in true obedience. And I'll ask you a question tonight. Have you responded in obedience, in belief to the message of the gospel that you've heard? Do you believe these things to be true? Do you believe that God is holy, righteous, and just? Do you believe that you are sinful? Do you believe also that God has made a way for you to be restored to Him, not through works done by you in righteousness, but by the substitutionary death and life of the Lord Jesus Christ in your place? And do you believe all of that message, and do you believe in a way that causes you to respond in faith, in repentance, and obedience. That is why Paul exists, to promote faith, that kind of faith, believing faith, obedient faith. Sometimes, sometimes I hear in testimonies, people say, I used to think I was a Christian. People would say, well, are you sure you're a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? And, and I would say something like, well, I, I've always gone to church. I kind of like being at church. I like doing good things. I like participating. I like serving at church. I, I feel like I kind of belong here. I must be a Christian. My whole, my whole family's a Christian. But notice that is not true belief. That's not true salvation. That's not true faith. Faith says this. It says, indeed, I am a sinner before God. A a, a God that is infinitely holy. 
and I stand condemned before this God to the extent where he would be just, justified, and worthy of worship to judge me eternally, forever, eternally, in hell, in separation from him. But I also believe that while I was still weak, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That now I can stand before God in Christ's righteousness. He has taken on my sin and put himself in my place and died the death that I deserved and he has given me his righteousness to stand before God. That is the obedience of faith. That is belief that Paul was sent to promote and produce. But let's look at another essential uh, element, uh, the second essential element of a blazing faith, you could say. This is the fuel of growth. Second purpose for which Christ has mastered Paul and sent him out of authority. It's closely linked to the first one. Matter of fact, uh, there's two phrases here for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Both of these are connected through the same preposition. You see it there, for. Both of them are connected. It, it indicates that they are close together. They are always seen together. You always see these two together. Faith and growth in knowledge. You always see these two things go hand in hand. And of course, this, this fuel of growth is referring to that second part of the prepositional phrase there in verse 1. For their knowledge of the truth. The second reason why Paul has been sent and is a slave of Jesus Christ is for the knowledge of truth to grow in the minds and hearts of God's people. Knowledge here is is a word that refers to a full and clear intellectual understanding of something. Uh, the ignition of faith, of course, uh, requires essential knowledge of the gospel. But I think this seems to refer to more of the growth that is seen instantaneously after someone comes to true and saving faith. You ever notice how uh, Christians love the Word of God? Christians love the preaching of God's Word. We can't get enough of the knowledge of the truth. They, they hunger for it. And this is why Paul has been sent. Not only to, to preach a gospel that promotes faith, but also to preach truth that increases knowledge and grows people in God's word. Matter of fact, notice, notice another reason why I think this refers to sanctification and not salvation in and of itself is because notice what this knowledge of the truth produces. It, it accords with Godliness, it promotes, it aims at, it produces. The result of knowledge of the truth, the more you know about God, is increased God-likeness. As you grow to know God through new and spiritually opened eyes, you become like Him more and more. You're convicted more and more by the sin in your life, and you start to contour your life towards the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because you can't stand the way you used to be. You can't stand sin in your life. You want to look more like Jesus because you love Him. Because your eyes have been opened in belief to Him. You could say it like this. True saving faith, in true saving faith, there is this series of chained reactions, right? Obedience and believing the gospel produces a hunger for more truth, which produces a godliness. Notice that just the, the link there. All of these are essential elements, and they produce one another. And this is what's described elsewhere in the Bible. Acts 20, verse 32, declares that the word of grace 
is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. The Word of God does that. It builds you up. And then 1 Peter 2.2 2 talks about kind of the, the, the inner dynamic of what's going on inside the Christian's life. Christians are like newborn infants who are hungry, who are crying out for one thing, that is their mother's milk. And what does 1 Peter 2.2 2 say? That they may grow up, that they may grow up. The Christian who is genuinely saved instantly experiences a hunger to know God more and more and more. And Paul was sent to both declare the gospel, but also to help believers grow. By the way, this is also the the purposes he has in mind as he writes. This is the, the Spirit's intended purposes in this very letter to Titus. To cause the obedience of faith and to help you grow in the knowledge of God. This is why you should read the letter of Titus. Now you might not know a moment of uh, of saving faith in your life. You may not know when this quote unquote ignition moment was when your eyes were opened to to believe the word of God. Sometimes it happens in an instant. Sometimes it is indetectable where you're not totally sure where it happened, but you know that your whole life is dominated by a belief that all of these things are true and your life is in conformity to them. You may not know that. But what's more important is, hey, are you walking in obedience? Are you following after Christ? But, but this other essential element, this, this growing in knowledge, this is a little telling, right? Because if, if you're somebody who claims to be a Christian, but you're not growing in godliness, it calls into question whether or not the initial ignition source of belief has occurred. These are all linked. They're essential elements. But let's move to the third essential element. And this is a little bit more foundational, perhaps, that wraps around the first two elements. This is what I refer to as the oxygen of hope. The oxygen of hope. You see it there in verse 2. All of this, all of this is done in, in a context, in an atmosphere, with, with a certain kind of oxygen. Why does Paul so faithfully serve? Why is Paul so bound to the Lordship of Christ? Why is Paul so determined to obey Christ regardless of where it takes him? Why do God's elect believe? And why do they continue to grow with hunger after the knowledge of God? Because they live a life in hope. In hope. In hope of eternal life. Verse 2, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Hope is the air that believers breathe. Hope strengthens and builds up faith. And it's hope in eternal life. The word here, hope, is, is different than, than our understanding of our English word for hope. We think of hope as wishful thinking. As, cross your fingers, I hope this works. As, man, I sure hope David's actually serious about doing a beach day in the fall. <laughs> but there's not a lot of certainty in that. There's not a lot of certainty that we're going to Six Flags or anything fun ever, because David just likes lake days. I can hope it happens, but it probably won't. 
No, but the biblical word for hope is different. It refers to a confident expectation. It is certainty. It is conviction. It is eyes that have been opened to truth and live completely different lives because of their hope. You may live in this world, but you, you breathe the air of another and you live according to other realities. Uh, the Christian does not live letting the passions and the pulls of the world around them and the next few moments dictate their hope. The Christian lives letting the poles and the passions of eternity dictate their hope and their life. Their whole life is lived in the hope of eternal life. They live with the priorities of eternity in their daily life. What are, what are the priorities of eternity? What are going to be your priorities a million years from now? What is it? It's going to be knowing God, and it's going to be, am I in a right relationship with God? That is the hope of eternal life, knowing God. Matter of fact, John seventeen three says this, Jesus says this, this is eternal life, knowing God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Your priorities, a million years from now, will be in my inner right relationship with God. Because that's all that's going to matter. And a believer lives their daily life in that hope as well, with those priorities set as well. Now, once again, all of these are tightly bound together, right? You remove one of these, and the rest fall flat, right? Faith produces this growth, but faith is also founded on hope. You can't go without any of these things, but... Notice, this hope that grounds this is not based in speculative theology. Man, I really hope God is this way. Belief and growth and hope are founded on the immovable character of God. Notice what it says in verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised... It's not based on how you feel today or tomorrow. It's based on what you know to be true of God. He promised this. Matter of fact, notice what it says. He promised this before the ages began. Or literally, before a times of eternity. Before time even began, he made a promise. And notice, it was before you even existed, and it is from a God who never, ever lies. Matter of fact, Paul is probably poking fun at the kind of the cultural virtues of that day. Because on Crete, they, they, they thought lying was cool. They thought lying was a virtue. In verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Maybe they didn't glorify it as much, but they actually thought lying was in some ways virtuous. They expected a hero to lie. It was common. Matter of fact, one of their gods that they truly loved, Zeus, always was found lying. 
And if you have ever watched God of Love and Thunder, you will understand completely. The gods did whatever they could do, told whatever lies they had to, in order to achieve their own personal ends, and that was considered virtuous. But our God is not that way. He never lies. When he promises something, it is fixed. Matter of fact, he cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. It's, it's hope rests in the character of God, but it also rests in the disclosure of God. This God who never lies, verse 3, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which with I have been entrusted by the command of God. Hope rests in the word of God declared by the sent servants of God. That is why Paul exists. That is Paul's mission that he's been entrusted with as a slave. And that is the the purpose that he's constantly pursuing. Obedience and faith, growth and knowledge, and establishment in hope. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by the, the powerful display of God's power, even in these three verses. Right? We, we see God's election here. We see God's sovereign plan here. We see God's powerful, powerful election, election and regeneration even at work here. We believe in truth, but we believe because God powerfully chooses to save us as a people for himself. So here we have Paul's, Paul's ministry. It's the ignition source of faith. It's to be the fuel for growth and it's to build and bring you the air of hope in your life. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this evening and now as we talk about these things, I pray that we would have minds and hearts that are ready and quick to apply them and to delight in them. And I pray that if anyone here is is looking at this list of descriptions of essential qualities of true saving faith and and recognize their lack, that they would be honest and and truthful about it. They would confess their sin to you. That they would turn to you in saving faith and repentance and find the glory of the gospel on the other side. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.